Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I have Mark Linus with me. Mark is a science writer and author of numerous books on the environment, including High Tide, Six Degrees, The God Species, Nuclear 2.0, and Seeds of Science. His most recent book, released on June 30th of 2020, was Our Final Warning, Six Degrees of Climate Emergency. Mark is currently a visiting fellow of the Cornell Alliance for Science at Cornell University, which engages in pro-science advocacy and research around the world. Mark, it's hard to do justice in a, in a short introduction like that, uh, but it's it's absolutely wonderful to have you on Decouple. Thanks for coming. Uh, my pleasure, Chris. It's um, good to talk to you. So, Mark, I wanted to bring you on the show to discuss your new book, Six Degrees, um, subtitled Our Final Warning. This is an update of your 2007 book of a similar title, and I believe this is essentially summarizing IPCC science and predictions on a stepwise approach, looking at what each degree means for us. Why did you feel compelled to revisit this topic with an updated book? Yeah, well, you mentioned it's a summary of IPCC science, but nobody reads IPCC science not politicians, not journalists, not general people. Uh, It's sometimes used as a reference tool, but no one actually reads it. And I wanted to write something which is actually readable. Um, Like I hope the first one was, it was the closest thing to a bestseller I've ever had. It was translated into something like two dozen languages. Um, This is the first Six Degrees, which was published in 2007. So what happened really was that I was still getting um, reader feedback, even like you know, into 2018, and people are asking me, what's what's the latest? What's changed about the science in, you know, the decade, nearly a decade and a half that's elapsed since since you researched the first six degrees? And I kind of ended up just thinking, oh, I'm going to have to rewrite the whole thing, because I knew there'd been a huge amount of additional work. I mean, there's probably hundreds of thousands of, of, of scientific papers been published on different aspects of climate since that time. And I didn't know what the answer was when people were asking me, is it better or is it worse? So kind of had to get back into it. And I thought I might as well just use the same structure because it's really useful to do the degree by degree breakdown. I don't know why the IPCC doesn't do it, probably because it's too useful. Um, and so, yeah, th- there we are. And I, I, I ended up writing a completely, completely new book from top to bottom. Yeah, it sounds like no small project. Um, the IPCC has become a, like a cultural reference point as, as the world authority on climate change, I think, deservedly. Um, it's certainly not universally admired, um, particularly in our present political climate uh, south of the Canadian border. But I think it's developed a really high degree of credibility to most rational people in governments. Um, I think I'd like to have some understanding of the scope uh, of it, but I'm I think I'm only scratching the surface. Can, can you help our listeners understand what this organization is, uh, how it works, how reliable it is in terms of, you know, approaching that holy grail of scientific accuracy? Well, I think your, met- your religious metaphor is quite apt. I mean, it's a bit like God that if the IPCC didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. And it's there actually to <laughs> kind of produce a sort of biblical reference point for the consensus position, if you like, amongst all of the world's relevant experts on where we are with with climate science. Um, It's split into three different working groups. So there's working group one, which does the physical science basis for climate change. There's 
working group two, which does what they call mitigation and adaptation. So that's how you reduce what happens to what you have to do to reduce emissions and where that gets you and adaptation. So how societies and ecosystems can adapt to climate change. Um, and then there's a, a third working group as well, which um, does everything else. So it's um, um, it, it's it's a very cumbersome beast involving uh, hundreds, thousands of, of, of experts reviewing the literature. And actually, I, I was doing the same thing. You know, I was going through um, hundreds of different journals and putting together um, all of the different impact studies for for my book and the ipcc does something does something fairly similar or they do it with a lot more people and they do it with a a more well it's certainly more rigorous i guess and it's 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 written in a much more scientific style as well so these things are you know you, you don't really see the printed copy anymore but i remember when when you did they were absolutely colossal <laughs> i can only imagine so um you know unlike god I, i'm sure that human institutions uh, like the ipc are, are fallible in in ways um, are there any, you know, major biases that you see or or mistakes that the IPCC has made since you started looking carefully at it and it's uh, and I guess the substance of its reports? Oh, they make the old mistake, but it would be pretty impossible not to when you're producing reports, you know, thousands of pages and you know hundreds of thousands of different statements of fact. Um, but I think they've done a pretty amazing job overall um, in that. You know, there's, I think there was one called Himalaya Gate, wasn't there? They, there was some statement about the Himalayan glaciers melting much more rapidly than, than, than is likely to be the case. And so there's, there's been the odd thing. But in, in general, I think the IPCC has been a, a, a model of scientific rigor and, and how the world community or the world expert community can actually mobilize on an issue and put all of the facts together into, into one place. I mean, we don't have anything like it on, on other major uh, major issues there's nothing like the ipcc right, right. on on biodiversity loss well there, well there is it's called ipbez but nobody knows about it and it's not very good and yeah so that that tells you something but obviously there's you know there's all sorts of challenges that we face and maybe look at look at the covid uh, response i mean the, has has the who performed that kind of a service um i'm not sure it has uh, part part of the reason is that the, the response has become so politicized and the IPCC's yeah. had to do a lot to resist that kind of politicization um, and, and not to become, you know, captured by one or other side of the debate. And I think it's, it's performed pretty well in doing that. Okay, yeah. Um, I had Jerry Thomas uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, um, and, and she was talking a little bit about, um, you know, how time-consuming and meticulous the process of achieving a scientific consensus around the health impacts of Chernobyl was. And I think a lot of people just don't have an understanding of the degree of kind of drudgery of hundreds or even thousands of scientists debating and fine tuning a consensus statement. Have you ever like witnessed this or, or been involved in, in any of these IPCC deliberations? No, I don't go to IPCC meetings. I mean, I'm not I'm not a bona fide expert. You have to be a some, somebody who's actually been involved in doing original research, really, to have anything useful to contribute. My My job is to sort of do the same thing in parallel and try and produce something which is rigorous enough to be meaningful but populist enough to be readable which the ipcc isn't really and it's not intended to be so i think there's you know it's just i have a different role i'm a science journalist uh, i'm not i'm not a, a trained scientist and in fact if i were a trained scientist i think that would detract from my ability to do science journalism which is a might, might seem like a strange statement to make but i can explain it if you like 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think the the role of uh, you know knowledge translators like yourself is is vital because there is this big gap. Um, and even, you know, in terms of how subspecialized the various um, subfields are within climate change, you know, these scientists are just not, I guess, not trained to to be able to communicate cohesively to the public by and large, by and large. Also, the skill set is the pretty much the opposite of what you need to be a good communicator. Um, if I was a trained scientist, then presumably I'd had to have completed a PhD on I don't know, the, the mating habits of freshwater shrimp or something, you know, why would that equip me to write about, you know, glacial collapse in the Himalayas? Well, it wouldn't. I mean, I might be familiar with some of the terminology and some of the procedures of, of, of how science works, but to be honest, that's not difficult to get your head around. Um, and so not being a trained scientist has enabled me to be completely interdisciplinary and to be just as comfortable banging on about well, nuclear power in Chernobyl, as you mentioned, uh, as I am about melting glasses in the Andes or something. Mm -hmm. So we've already gotten to a one degree rise in average global temperatures since the Industrial Revolution. And that was over a period of, of about 150 years, I believe. Um, you know, I think most people with an internet connection are aware of the increase in heat waves or, you know, worsening extreme weather events. We're, I hate to say it, it seems like we're likely headed for three degrees by 2100. Can you give us a brief overview of the kind of climate stressors we're going to be confronting on the way to three degrees and once we get there? Um, sure. I know that's a huge question. <laughs> yeah, um, read the book. But, you know, three degrees isn't, it's bad, but it's not as bad as three and a half. It's not as bad as four. It's not as bad as four and a half, you know, to, at the risk of, of, of stating the obvious. But, um, you know, what... The, there's some some impacts which are, I think are, are really really worrying um, even at even at three degrees. Um, I think the production of food on a global scale will be seriously challenged, potentially imperiled, and um, even before three degrees, that I think we'll, we're likely to see a peaking of food supplies because of drought and and just heat in the parts of the world which are producing most of the world's food at the moment. Um, you get into a situation really where you're beginning to make large areas of the subtropics intolerably hot. Um, so maybe a bit below the sort of biological tolerance threshold that humans have, but still hot enough that you've got lethal heat, you know, sort of Death Valley type temperatures across much of the southern US and that kind of stuff. So it's going to really stretch um, our capacity to adapt and it will also eradicate whole ecosystems i mean there won't be any coral reefs left at three degrees and probably not much in the way of tropical forests either um, all of the arctic sea ice will have gone all both polar ice caps will be in irreversible melt and so on and so forth so it's not it sounds like the early stages of a six degree <laughs> possibility but three degrees is, is still worth doing everything we can to avoid mm -hmm, absolutely um one question I have is, it, it seems like there's a lot of momentum within the Earth system in terms of, you know, forcing that, that has just occurred from the amount of, of carbon we've already put into the atmosphere. You know, say we, we get to, you know, we manage to curb things to two or three degrees. Um, what does it look like to sort of stabilize things at that new temperature? Um, does that require things like negative emissions or, or what would that look like? Um, it depends on how much carbon we emit between now and then. So the ultimate temperature rise is a product of cumulative emissions. So carbon budgets, if you like. 
because CO2 in the atmosphere has a pretty long resonance time. So it, the warming that you get as a result of it is pretty much a product of the amount of carbon that you put up there. Um, so, and, and I, if I remember rightly, we've got about 400 gigatons, 400 billion tons left of CO2 that we can emit if we're to stay on a 1.5 degree trajectory. That whole carbon budget will be used up within less than a decade from now. <clears throat> so we'd have to close down all of the fossil fuels within 10 years to stay on 1.5, unless you then assume that we can do negative emissions later on in the century, which is what um, all of the, the the models of 1.5 do. They dip below the zero line after about, I don't know, 2060 or something. Is that realistic? Um, I'm not like, aware. How, well, is, how well, would that like, be achievable? Is, is, there, is this just pure fantasy? Um, it, it's, it's a sort of imaginable fantasy in that you could... <laughs> <laughs> you could you could conceivably capture um you know a, a lots of co2 through chemical processes which take it out of the air and, and, then, and then liquefy it and then pump it underground but you'd be basic thermodynamically you'd be basically reversing the course of the industrial revolution and you know it's, the, it's doing the opposite of what the oil and gas industry has done for the last um hundred odd years taking the carbon out and putting it back into the ground it's not it no it's not going to happen um i mean yeah so, so it's, it's pretty dumb to think about it the only realistic thing we can do which is sort of negative emissions is to reforest a lot of the world's land or at least allow forests natural forests to return but you know that that gets you a few tens of gigatons at the very most so it's sort of it 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 can remove some of the carbon, but it's not, it's fairly inconsequential if you compare it to what we need to do to actually stop emitting carbon in the first place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So far, climate change seems to be occurring at a pace that's kind of just beyond what humans are able to perceive on a, you know, a year by year, decade to decade basis outside of, you know, dramatic disasters or weather events, like a Hurricane Harvey, for instance. Um, you know, when I think back to my childhood and I think about, you know, long drives across the country and how we had to scrub, you know, insect debris off of our windshields or, you know, even just going back to the, the town I grew up in and remembering, you know, in spring that, you know, the bird song was just deafening as a child and it's, it's just so much more quiet now. Um, you know, I can perceive these changes maybe with the benefit of, you know, being 38 now. Um, it seems like the CO2 levels are rising in a fairly linear trajectory, but the pace of warming is kind of more exponential. It, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, uncontained coronavirus outbreaks that we, we don't really see it until it's almost too late. Do, do you think there's going to be a, a clear point where, you know, the impacts are going to be absolutely perceptible and sort of undeniable on a, on a year by year basis? I would argue we're already at that point. Um, I mean, all, all the weather we see now is, is influenced by um, climate warming. Um, but we get exactly what you referred to, which is sort of shifting baselines. I mean, you remember, you say you remember what it was like to have all of those insects and all that bird song, but your kids won't. Hmm. Um, so that baseline will be very different. And your parents and grandparents' baselines would have been different too. And they, so you can experience deformation and the elimination of so much wildlife in there you know, a multi-generational timescale, but 
which is pretty much the time scale that climate change takes place at. So it is a very difficult thing to engage with at a, you know, at, at a kind of personal experiential level. Um, you know, and I tried to, I've tried to get to grips with this in my own work. Um, you know, the, the first book that I ever did was, which was called High Tide, was traveling around the world trying to distinguish the impacts of climate change and going to a glacier in the Andes that my dad had, you know, seen 22 years earlier and seeing it had disappeared and going and visiting small islands where the seas were rising and just trying to bring it home and make it, um, you know, make it uh, visible uh, and make it emotional and make it something which which was impactful. And that happens all the time now. I mean, you can, all these kinds of stories are now all over the news on a fairly regular basis. So it doesn't, there's no sense of novelty in that approach. But, you know, in some ways, I think we've just got used to it. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's the life we're living. You know, now it's, it's, it's warming up, but you won't get so much snow and you won't get so much ice and the hurricanes will be stronger and so on and so forth. I think we, it's just one of those things that's faded into the background to a certain extent. So you've still got the boiling frog problem, even though we're all aware that that climate change is happening on a daily basis now. Mm -hmm. So looking back through geologic time, the Earth has experienced previous, you know, hothouse climatic conditions. Um, I think the one that you write about in the book that was most dramatic was the Paleocene Eocene thermal maximum. Um, can you can you tell us about the I guess the PETM? Um, I will struggle with the. Uh, with getting the the names right for these geologic time frames, um, you know what can the PETM teach us about uh, planetary processes that that drove us to these high temperatures? Well, what's interesting to look at with these sort of mega thermal events in geological in the geological past is what the causal mechanisms um, may have been. Um, I mean, the PETM isn't a isn't a significant mass extinction on the on the on the record, which is one of the surprising things about it, and suggests it maybe took place over a fairly longish period of time. But most of the big five mass extinctions um, were likely associated with with rapid um, climate change, either warming or, in some cases, possibly cooling. Um, you know, the 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 end end Permian mass extinction two hundred fifty two million years ago was was the biggest in terms of the extent of life that disappeared um and with you know most of them seem to be associated with <clears throat> um huge injections of carbon into the atmosphere from the lithosphere so from 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 rocks um, and one of the ways that this happens is through the eruption of um what's called um flood basalt so big huge provinces of of, of basalt um emerge from the um from the earth's mantle and spread out onto the surface sometimes they're kilometers thick i mean around the time of the end of the cretaceous in the deccan plateau as it is now in india you know, and, and also in the siberian traps it's called which was the the flood basalt episode associated with the end of the permian um extinction you know these are these are thousands of meters thick so huge huge quantities of, of erupting basalt which releases a lot of co2 um, in you know more a lot more than humanity so far managed but the one of the things that really struck me in in doing this research is that it seems quite likely that humanity is we're not at the scale yet at these of these big 
um, geological megathermal you know, hothouse episodes in terms of our carbon emissions, but we're, 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 we've gone past them in terms of the rate of emissions. So, you know, we've, humans have done more in digging up coal and oil and gas and burning it in one century than, than, than natural processes have ever managed, even in the most cataclysmic mass extinctions that have ever happened. And, Which is and quite some... yeah, in your book, you, you talk about basically how these, um, these lava basalts infiltrated into coal seams and, you know, the, the language you used to describe it is, is very dramatic, but, you know, these, um, kind of chimneys that formed and just belched, you know, all of this, this, uh, coal fly ash and, and that it actually really resembles, um, some of the effects that we see when we burn coal and power plants in terms of like heavy metals being deposited. Uh, I found that that was a really fascinating uh, part of the book. Yeah, I, I found it fascinating doing the research. Um, but yeah, yeah. But even with the end Permian mass extinction, it doesn't rival in at least in, in scale today's coal industry. So we are we're releasing coal faster than um, than, than <laughs> these enormous volcanic eruptions were able to do when they intruded into into coal seams. Uh, it just it just um, seems extraordinary, you know. And these, you know, I guess geologically microscopic creatures on the face of the planet that are capable of of disrupting the carbon cycle in such a dramatic way that we can actually, you know, dig up that much coal and burn it, or drill that much oil, and, and it's just, yeah, it it kind of boggles the mind when you step back from it. Yeah, well, I challenge I challenge that that um idea most people have this sense that uh, we're humans are really small but we're not we're really huge you know our our biomass of human flesh is probably equivalent to all of the other large animals in the world put together if you don't count our own livestock which more or less counts as an extension of human flesh as we eat them um and and humans are, are a geologically transformative agent i mean that's why we're now fairly generally acknowledged to be in the anthropocene uh, a geological era epoch i can't remember which um you know, which is determined by us as a single species. And that was, in fact, the topic of my my previous book um, called The God Species. That was about Homo sapiens, you know. We are, we are as gods, as um, Stuart Brand famously put it, and we might as well get good at it because we are terraforming this planet, um, mostly in negative ways. And it's not just the carbon cycle, it's the nitrogen cycle, it's the water cycle, it's pretty much every geophysical process which takes place at a at a you know earth, earth system scale which is being directly um not just directly influenced but but really transformed by human activity um james lovelock is one of my favorite people in the world i think he's a, obviously the brilliant british inventor and scientist um, and one one thing that he wrote in in one of his books i read recently was was talking about how if humans you know, incapacitate our ecologic life support systems, we're going to become obliged to engineer our own. And he sort of equates this to a patient going into kidney failure and requiring dialysis. In your book, you talk about some of the possible climate adaptation strategies like dams and dikes, you know, to mitigate flooding or sea level rise. Um, even, you know, cities developing the capacity to, you know, massively air condition just so they can pre preserve themselves, you know, within these new kind of hot zone areas, how, like, how sustainable is this? Um, well, it's, it's not, it's not sustainable as an alternative to reducing emissions, but 
it's sustainable uh, as an adaptation strategy for the lower degrees of warming. I mean, you know, there's parts of the world like the Netherlands, which are already a couple of meters below sea level and seem to get on managed perfectly well with big dikes and big hydraulic, you know, water engineering projects. Um, you could conceivably extend that to Bangladesh and other areas of mo more vulnerable areas of the world's coastline. It's not impossible to imagine. You could, you know, when you've got cirrus droughts, you could desalinate billions of tons of water. But all these things require energy, and the energy is is not is not plentiful when you're trying to get rid of fossil fuels. Unless, of course, you go for nuclear. I think nuclear is probably the only way you can realistically do any of this um, adaptation. Um, because if you have if you have nuclear on a really large scale, then energy is not really a limited resource anymore. But for everything else, it is. And if you go for a renewables only approach, then you've got to pave over entire continents pretty much with solar and wind. You know, I'm not even sure the materials are available, let alone the build out rates that you'd need. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the, the various fantasy plans for how you do that, um, I don't think take into account the, the actual, the, you know, the serious ecological impacts as, as well as the gen, you know, general unfeasibility of doing things at that kind of colossal scale. Yeah, I want to get into um, adaptation strategies and, and um, solutions a bit later in the interview. But, you know, get, getting back to um, you know, talking about anthropogenic climate change, it, it seems like, you know, at least in, in many countries, it's starting to cross the political aisle. And, you know, the science is becoming undeniably clear. And even people, you know, on the far right who used to be Climate deniers are, you know, at least acknowledging um, that we are, that human beings are driving climate change. Um, but on the other hand, it seems like there's a lot of climate complacency, which is emerging in terms of, you know, saying, well, yeah, it's happening, but, you know, we don't know really how bad it will be. Or, you know, for instance, that industrialization and improved infrastructure, um, you know, have decreased the, the human casualties of floods and extreme weather events. Um and so they, they say that, you know, just further development is the most important thing to focus on right now, even if that increases emissions, um, you know, particularly in, in the poor and developing world where they really don't share much responsibility for the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. What do you think about these arguments? Well, I mean, some of them, some of them have, have a degree of validity. If I was president of or prime minister of Bangladesh, I would advocate a rapid energy intensive development plan path to you know to to do what 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 you can to uh, eradicate poverty not just for moral reasons but because infrastructure protects against climate damage so yes your average hurricane strike will kill 100 times more people if it hits an underdeveloped coastline in 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 a african or south asian country than if it hits the united states um and actually bangladesh to talk about that example has done a huge amount already to 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 reduce the death tolls from hurricanes so some people point to that and say well hurricanes aren't getting any worse because so many fewer people die but which is great by the way but the two things don't uh, necessarily imply one another um hurricanes are probably getting stronger but at the same time death rates have decreased dramatically because we've got better forecasting systems and hurricane shelters uh, so people can get out of the way they can evacuate um, and they can shelter in in reinforced structures which mean that people don't don't drown 
Um, so all, all these things have to happen, but it doesn't mean that you then have to deny the gravity and the urgency of the problem. It seems like, you know, one of the big um, issues with adaptation, as you're mentioning, um, this will be a very energy intensive process and we have to find um, the energy generation tools that have, you know, the lowest uh, environmental impact that are the most concentrated. Um, and you mentioned nuclear, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, less developed countries leapfrogging the fossil fuel era. Um, and, you know, I, I think that would involve a pretty dramatic um, transfer of, of technology and expertise, um, you know, around around these advanced technologies like nuclear. Are you aware of, you know, any any examples of anything like this occurring in the developing world? What, of energy leapfrogging? Yeah, yeah. Not not on a scale that's meaningful, no. I mean, you can, there's, there's, there's lots of solar PV going in and it's, it's certainly a, probably the cheapest option it's cheaper and, and more easy to scale quickly than building another great big coal-fired power station um but can you run can you run whole cities can you run whole countries grids on solar no one's ever demonstrated that um you know it, i don't i don't think you can say it's physically impossible but the scale of the challenge is pretty daunting um, and it would also have um a lot of a lot of ecological impacts alongside I mean, these things, you know, most PV panels have, what, a lifetime of 20, 30 years. Um, there's not really any viable approach even to recycle them. There's a lot of rare earths that go into the whole process. Um, so it's not it's not even sustainable. I mean, it, people think it's sustainable because it's the sunshine and it's the wind and, you know, it's all nature. And But the, the reality of the industrial challenge that, you know, you, you've got to make you've got to build country-sized installations and that's that's never been done before and i'm not i'm not sure it's possible um so i think you know i i'm reluctant to come to the conclusion that nuclear is the only feasible way but it's it's certainly the only way that i can conceive of that you can have the amounts of energy that humanity will require without doing incalculable incalculable amounts of damage further damage to the earth's ecology by dominating the the land the land space even further with you know we, it's not just agri now it's agriculture to produce food but imagine if all our energy also has to come from from increasing you know human dominance of land use so you, know, you i've done some some mapping and modeling recently for a different piece of work I'm, i've been involved in um the last few weeks and you know to replace just oil in south korea with hydrogen you need to you know develop an area of solar which is pretty much half the country or offshore wind which is pretty much the whole country um with nuclear you can do it in a you know a few tens of well a few a few square kilometers basically so if you want to be into rewilding which i am and you want to see um uh forest return and you want to see land left for species then You've, you've got a real conflict with with those who want to see 100% renewables. You know, one of the one of the solutions you're mentioning, if you were the the prime minister or the president of Bangladesh, would be to kind of rapidly develop things. Um, and you know, I think the IPCC's models um, anticipate kind of linear, ongoing economic growth. Um, but obviously, there's um, a big toll on the economy of you know ever more frequent superstorms, which require 
you know, rebuilding of, you know, our agriculture potentially becoming less, less productive? What kind of a drag will, will climate change, you know, have on our economies and our abilities to adapt? We don't know. And actually, I think economic models are bunkum. Um, I don't think climate models are because they're based on physics, but economic models are based on, well, nothing really. Um, and so you can get people like Bjorn Lomborg saying, well, you know, if you plug this into the economic model, three degrees just reduces global productivity by a few percentage points. So we'll be, you know, only eight times richer rather than nine times richer. So why are we worrying about it? That's the kind of answer that economic models give you, but they don't take into account the cost of damage, um, or at least not in any meaningful sense. I mean, they try and they try and monetize it, but how much was the destruction of the coral reefs worth again? You know, where does where does that come in the model? <laughs> um, yeah. Just anything. They can't answer any of these any of the most basic questions. Uh, you know, children could tell you that it's a it's a real emperor's new clothes thing. So I, I don't take. They they actually some of these economic models have damage functions in them which, you know, you get to six degrees and well that's only a ten percent of the world's economy, I'm like really. Right. So you get to Venus and that's like half the world's economy gone. But <laughs> yeah, you talked about the terraforming of Earth, but um, in the Anthrop- Anthropocene, but it sounds a bit more like the the Venus forming. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned in your book, uh, speaking of, of, you know, models that, um, you know, the supercomputers that we're using that are crunching, like, I think it was something like trillions of calculations per second. It's absolutely mind boggling. But these these supercomputers, um, you know, are allowing climate science, scientists to fairly accurately model the physical impacts of climate change. Um, but obviously, they can't anticipate human reactions in terms of our politics. Um, you know, we've seen a steady rise in right-wing populism and xenophobia over the last at least five years, um, including you know, anti-immigration tendencies like Trump's border wall. Um, you know, post-war, there was a real period of, of you know, I think prosperity that, that um, brought in things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and, you know, refugee rights and things like that. How do you see climate change impacting us politically as a... As, uh, you know, climate stressors continue to mount? Uh, <laughs> I have zero idea, but then neither does anyone else. And it's up to us to to affect the outcome anyway. But like I say in the book somewhere, you know, there's no line of code in the models that param- parameterizes human idiocy. Um, but just look around you, look at Bolsonaro in Brazil. So the more Amazon rainforest that gets burned, the happier that guy is. And how does that you know, in what way is that an intelligent human response to, 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 well, any kind of ecological challenge? And and obviously, I mean, don't get me, don't get me started on Trump. Uh, I I don't know where to go with that. It's just if the world is going to be run by Trumps, then we won't be able to solve any problem because we'll be chasing down blind alleys with conspiracy theories in some in the service of some sort of vague fascistic. Um, you know, end state of utter corruption and decay. I don't know where it goes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you know, there's no point in trying to have a rational conversation with people like Trump because they're not they're not rational people, and they don't, you know, they don't they don't see the world in the same way that 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 I see it and and you see it and other <laughs> rational people see it. And I don't think it's even a political thing. I don't see Trump as 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 being right wing. Even I mean, right wing was about um you know about free markets and you know none of that matters to trump 
Trump's about Trump. Um, it, he's a strange, fucked up, narcissistic um, half, person, half person. You know, doesn't even have a fully formed, fully formed personality. Um, for, unfortunately, Trump and his administration are so staggeringly incompetent that they might not be able to engineer uh, his return to power. And, you know, I look forward to that day with eager anticipation. <laughs> I share I share your outlook there. Um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of um, reading this book, it's certainly very, um, very alarming. Um, how would you describe yourself politically? Are you, are you a climate alarmist? Um, what do you, what do you feel about the the politics of of alarmism? Is it is it a useful way to motivate change um, and and fend off the worst of climate change? Like, where do you situ, situate yourself on? I guess, on the spectrum of, of alarmism versus complacency? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> both alarmism and complacency are pejoratives, really. So I don't think one wants to be at either end of that particular spectrum. Um, that was a, as it set you up with that question there. Yeah. Good dodge. Yeah. Indeed, you, you can be alarmed, and I think the situation is alarming, but the response to that isn't necessarily to be alarmist. Um, that sort of implies a degree of, of crying wolf. Um, but I mean, the, to return to the six degrees, the point of the structure of the book is to say, if we um, increase emissions by this much, then we will see this much warming and this is what's going to happen. And then it kind of, you know, knocks the ball back into your court as the reader or anything. And you have to decide, well, OK, what am I prepared to tolerate? What do I think is acceptable? What do I think we could adapt to? You know, what's the trade off? between the convenience of, of our um, carbon-heavy lifestyles and the need to protect, um, you know, the, uh, habitable climate on this planet. Um, it's not an easy trade-off. I mean, if I put it like that, it sounds like it's a no-brainer, but maybe some degree of warming is better to and, and to try and adapt to that and, you know, in order to... to, to to keep um, as much of our civilization humming along as possible. A lot of people make that case. Um, but I just want people to be as well-informed as possible about what actually is likely to happen. Yeah, what the implications are for, for each of those degrees, yeah. Um, you know, we, we were talking briefly earlier about how human development has led to decreased um, deaths from disasters. But it seems to me that, you know, a slow motion disaster um, are the climate induced refugee crises, which, you know, look to worsen significantly as we you know head even to two or three degrees. What's your what's your outlook on this? Or could you could you kind of summarize what what these refugee flows might look like in a two or three degree world? Uh, well, it's difficult to say, obviously, but, and, and a lot of, uh, you know, this is why I, I get speculative in terms of how I wrote the book, because I just speculate. I think, well, if if you lose the habitability of most of the Middle East and South Asia, what's likely to happen? If people can't live there, are they going to just stay there and die, or are they going to move? And I think most people would move in the same way that people leave a war zone like Syria um, if they, you know, if, if they're in fear of their lives. And um, so, so it's, it's, it's possibly you could say it's a fairly predictable process. 
Um, and we won't be able to build walls and we shouldn't try and build walls. And, and you know, what the, the, the crisis in Syria, I think, was a wake up call for, for Europe. Um, and you can see how that transformed European politics. And that's what really pushed us into uh, Brexit and, and into right wing kind of racist populism was the refugees knocking on the door and saying, we want to come and live in your countries because it's not safe in Syria anymore. And oh, yes, by the way, we're Muslims. Sorry about that. And all of all of the the sort of poisonous politics that, that resulted with populist parties taking advantage of that. When you talk about, you know, the, the forces that are driving people to move in the future, you mentioned in the book something called the wet bulb temperature, you know, and, and you know, we can talk about storms displacing people or sea level rise displacing people. But I think one of the more or the most compelling factors is just heat stress. You know, and I, I in my job as an emergency physician, luckily, it's been fairly rare occurrence. But during heat waves, I've, I've had to treat people with heat stroke and heat exhaustion. But yeah, could you, could you just tell us about the wet bulb temperature, what that means and, and you know, what proportion of humanity is likely to be you know, affected by that in terms of the regions that are, you know, where they currently live and, and that are expected to hit these wet bulb temperatures that really make, you know, human life impossible, even on the kind of hour to hour schedule? Yeah, so wet bulb is like if you've got, well, it's like the bulb of a thermometer. If it's wet and you're blowing air at it, it would cool off by... Um, you know, latent heat transfer, basically, uh, which is what how, you know, as warm blooded animals, we lose heat through perspiration. So you put moisture onto the outside of your skin and that that blows away and that uh, get that reduces your heat. So the 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 wet bulb thing is a kind of combination of, of very high humidity and very high temperature. So, you know, for you as a as a doctor, imagine somebody comes to you with heat stroke and you are in a, you know, in a sauna, <laughs> a room which is both very humid and very hot. How do you get their temperature down? Right. You, you can't do that. There's no there's just no way physically to do it. And that's so that's where you come up against the, the sort of biological tolerance threshold, which is about, you know, a wet bulb temperature, about 34 degrees, I think. Um, so a, a combination of of, of very high dry bulb temperatures and very high humidity um and and that then it becomes well biologically impossible to function outside so outside an artificial environment um so you you'd have to stay in your air-conditioned building for as long as as long as the outside temperature is is, is uninhabitable yeah what sort of numbers of of people are we looking at you know say by the end of the century if we hit three degrees that would that would be exposed to that on a on a, on a regular basis I would say it's more uh, more predictable for four degrees. Than, and at that stage, you have pretty much most of the Middle East, a lot of South Asia, so uh, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, large parts of eastern China, um, Indonesia, all those areas, which, by the way, have actually, I think, have the majority of the world's population, particularly if you include parts of North Africa, North and East Africa as well. Um, that's pretty much it. Um, so that would be people in the billions. And, you know, in, in the Gulf countries, it seems like, you know, they're, they're pretty close to heat exhaustion if it wasn't for the enormous amount of fossil fuels that they burn in order to create these little air conditioned islands. Um, yeah, like if you Abu Dhabi, for instance, Dubai yeah. or, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi and play, yeah, I mean, those are, those are exactly that. They're sort of artificial cooled domes in the desert 
all run from oil. Um, so it's about as unsustainable as, as it's possible to get. Uh, and actually, they've some of those areas have come pretty close to this um, uninhabitable wet bulb temperature already, like within a degree or two for, for, for you know, just a few hours. But if you look at some of the early scientific papers on this, it wasn't supposed to happen until the end of the century with five degrees. So the fact it's beginning to evolve already it suggests it's going to happen much, much earlier and much more quickly. So I want to move on a little bit to, to talking about, you know, solutions. And we, we've talked about nuclear power um, a little bit earlier. Um, the, the Mesmer plan in France um, led to a rapid decarbonization of French electricity. Um, you know, and that actually includes um, heating and, and passenger rail as well, which is largely electrified in France. But, you know, over the period of about 15 years, um, they built something like 50 nuclear power plants. Um, and achieved one of the quickest deep carbon deep decarbonize deep jeez, I struggle with that word deep decarbonization efforts in history. Oh, it's not, it's not really um, just wonder Greenpeace is against it. Fancy decarbonizing your economy so rapidly. <laughs> how could yeah. how could anyone accept such an outrageous thing to have happened? Well, and, and celebrating outside of uh, nuclear power plants that are being closed early and, and replaced by well, gas. Not just that, but some of the anti-nuclear activists even bombed them. I mean, there was a guy who fired rocket-propelled grenades at um, uh, Super Phoenix, which was the uh, fast reactor that the French were building. So the only actual terrorist attack that's ever been carried out against against nuclear power installation was carried out by the Greens. Oh, my God. So this this Mesmer plan was only possible due to, you know, a state-driven politics that could plan and mobilize resources around this clear vision uh, you know, of this big nuclear build out, you know, and maintain it over a course of decades, um, you know, not just over the course of, a, you know, the administration of one presidency or, you know, a congressional cycle. Um, but, you know, it was a, it was a state driven effort. Um, do you feel that we're, we need a political U-turn away from neoliberalism and back towards, you know, social democracy or a robust role for government in order to actually be able to achieve anything close to this, you know, World War II level mobilization that people are calling for if we want to, you know, get down to, you know, even two degrees? Oh, that I don't know. That's that's um, that's beyond my pay grade. Um, but even looking at the situation in France, I mean, that political consensus has begun to fracture. Um, you've got the Greens now, which are, who are perilously close to government, and their main agenda is to close down France's nuclear power sector and replace it with uh, renewable, presumably augmented by natural gas. So you'd end up with an e- ecologically dramatically inferior situation. I mean, why, why why replace nuclear with renewables? What's the point? You just have to devote large areas of land to wind and solar for no carbon benefit whatsoever. It's it's a purely ideological prospect uh, project, sorry, and it doesn't have climate anywhere, <laughs> anywhere part of it. Um, so even even in France, it's not as if the the you know the, the 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 battle was necessarily won. And I think you know one of the reasons why I'm an eco modernist is because I, I want to be part of a movement which defends the the nuclear installations that we have and kind of detoxifies the issue so that we can have a serious consideration of a rapid new build program um, sufficient to 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 hit some of the net zero targets that we need to have by the middle of the century. Um, whether that's done, and you, you might get back to your earlier question, whether that's done in the private sector or public sector, I don't know. All I know is we've got to churn these things out like sausages, 
um, in in a modular factory environment. Um, there's no good. Um, of, of course, that's a, a Soviet five year plan uh, reference to uh, Khrushchev, I believe, right when he was talking to Nixon. Yeah, I think I think there it was tractors, but now it's now it's reactors. So um, yeah. You, you, you can only do this on a, on a, in a modular manufacturing approach. Um, uh, probably shipyards, you know, where, where they're used to building very large pieces of, of steel. <laughs> um, and but I mean, even even then, the scale is is pretty pretty colossal. I mean, if you were to to, to replace the world's oil with hydrogen as a liquid fuel, you'd need to build the equivalent of the entire nuclear fleet of like about four hundred and fifty odd reactors every single year. And that's not because it's difficult to do it with nuclear. That's the easier, easiest way to do it. So, I mean, the scale of the energy challenge is, is almost incomprehensible. So, okay, well, let's move on uh, from energy towards something more, more optimistic, perhaps. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, um, you know, many predicted massive famines as a result of increasing population um, based on agricultural productivity at the time. And mass starvation was only avoided because of the Green Revolution with rapid advances in plant breeding, mechanization, I guess, irrigation, fertilizers. Climate change seems to pose unprecedented challenges to food security. Do you think that we, you know, you're an expert on on genetic engineering. Um, you've certainly changed your opinions on it. Do you think we have the technology and I guess more importantly, the social license to use that technology in order to meet the challenge of feeding a growing population in a rapidly warming world? Well, that's another challenge for the eco-modernists to um, try and um, push for an evidence-based or science-based environmentalism. Um, and for me, that's, you know, that's my biggest sort of ideological preoccupation, if you like. Um, let's, let's try and get Greens to accept the scientific consensus on this issue. Um, and, and not just Greens, but the left generally, I think, <clears throat> who, who's and Europe, by the way, you, I mean, Europe. And it's not just the left, actually. Some of the more right wing countries like Hungary and Poland are also fanatically anti anti GMO. So let, <laughs> at the moment that it's a bit like nuclear, that technology has been ruled, you know, has, has been ruled akin to witchcraft and we can't ever use it because it's um, bad. Right. But we can't, we, we won't be able to adapt to even very moderate warming without using, being able to change the genetics of crop plants. I mean, it's the most obvious thing. Uh, and, you know, the, the sort of standard prescription of green pieces, green pieces like you have to use, well, it's it, it, magic, really. <laughs> Conventional breeding, you've got to use the oldest tools uh, to deal with the newest challenges, um, because that's the only thing that satisfies our ideology. Um, won't wash and it's going to going to hamper food security and by the way this whole sort of um, I think they call it uh, agroecology organic farming that kind of stuff you know there's there's some really good parts of that but if if it's if it's an agenda for low productivity agriculture that necessitates the use of more land uh, which means that that you know there goes your rewilding. It's over. Um, if you're cultivating more and more land to feed a larger population in very low productivity methods, because you're not allowed to use genetic engineering, you're not allowed to use mechanization, you're not allowed to use fertilizers, you're not allowed to use irrigation. It's all got to be in harmony with nature, i.e., subsistence level. I mean, this isn't this isn't a 
I don't know. I, I don't even know why what people are thinking who who imagine this is the way forward. Um, it, it, given the kind of challenges we face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope I hope they read your book and get a sense of what you know what an emergency is and and you know that it might require responses that make them uncomfortable. But why do you think that you know the people who are most aware and concerned about climate change are so conservative? when it comes to developing and deploying technologies like like nuclear and genetic engineering, you know, the precautionary principle just seems to completely um, outweigh, you know, the known, the known knowns of climate change that we face. Yeah, well, I'm glad you used the word conservative, because that that's what it is. It, it's it's conservatism, it's it's a refusal to, to face new realities and to imagine new possibilities. Um, and, and it's very um, it's very reactionary, so it's actually the opposite of of, of being a progressive. And I would count myself as a, as a progressive. I I believe in the possibility of progress and and in, improvement in the human condition for a, as many people as possible, which includes ecological restoration and tackling climate change. Um, so, you know that that's <laughs> that's why this is a political a political challenge. It isn't. It's not just about nukes and GMOs. It's not just you know the 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 classic techno fix that actually is embedded in a whole different system of political thinking. And I think it, you know, it makes sense to, to talk about those things. So, I, you know, on the, on the agricultural front, one of the things that you mentioned that I found very worrying was that so far we've been able to avoid famines and starvations because, you know, agricultural stressors like flooding and droughts have been, you know, quite regionalized and we have a international system of aid that has been able to fill in those gaps. But you mentioned as, as climate change progresses, you can have multiple simultaneous, uh, you know, bread basket regions that fail um, and that this, this can have real global implications for, for food security. And I think, I think you were saying that we've seen like a taste of this. Uh, was it in the, I always try, have a hard time describing the two thousands, the late first decade of, of the two thousands. Um, in what situation? Uh, I, I just remember uh, from your book, you mentioning that, you know, food prices really skyrocketed, I think, when there was um, some degree of a kind of coordinated oh. global drought. Yeah, that was in 2008. And, and actually, that was more related to high oil, oil prices, which fed into the um, in, into the food, into the commodities market. Um, yeah, and that led to a, a big escalation in, in food prices. And so that's kind of what might happen if you have uh, a serious, seriously limited harvest. And there's not been any sign of that so far. Actually, food productivity, food production on aggregate has continued to rise with population um, because, you know, we're, we're not following the lead of Europe in going down this, you know, <laughs> this rabbit hole of refusing to use new technologies. Um, in North America, productivities continue to increase. Um I don't think that will be able to be sustained with, you know, with the, with two de- two degrees or three degrees of warming, but for the moment it's enough to keep uh, keep people alive and to, you know, if, if COVID hadn't intervened, would hopefully been have been on the way to further reducing the prevalence of of, of malnutrition and food insecurity around the world. So getting back to this conservatism um, and, and reactionary nature of, of particularly, I guess, environmental politics in the EU, but I think, I think more globally with organizations like, like Greenpeace that, that truly are global phenomena, um, you know, 
your your original six degrees book was um i think towards the beginning of your science writing career you received much acclaim including the royal society science books prize um you mentioned that i think in some of your other writings that this led to scrutiny of your past activism which included your opposition and campaigning against gmos in seeds of science one of your previous books um, i found one of the most interesting chapters to be about sort of the psychology of changing one's mind and i guess of sort of shifting kind of tribal allegiances um what, what have you learned from that experience in terms of you know trying to convince others to i guess be a little more open-minded and um entertain the possibility of using you know sensibly the most uh, potent technologies that we have to to adapt to the challenges of climate change well at a sort of fairly superficial level i've been able to say from my own experience that um if you're going to accept the scientific consensus on the reality of climate change then you should also accept the scientific consensus of an equivalent sort of magnitude on the safety of gmos um, what, and, and if you refuse to do that, then you can't claim to be an evidence-based person. And, <laughs> you know, and, and I can say that from the perspective of somebody who's had to change my mind because, I, you know, I was writing about climate change and insisting that people listened to the scientists because there was this scientific consensus. And when it finally dawned on me that there was, I was ignoring an equivalent scientific consensus on the issue of genetic engineering, I ultimately had to change my mind on that too. So I've, you know, I know what it's like. I've been through that process. It's not easy, but it's a necessary one. Um, and I think, well, you know, eco-modernists are there already. I think the rest of the environmental movement is making some steps towards it. Even Greenpeace doesn't really bother with GMOs much anymore. Um, they know they're on the wrong side of the argument and they might as well just go quiet. So the it's really only the extremes who continue to campaign against GMOs in an active sense. Um, you know, the kind of yogic flying nut quack nut cases, um, who are also who are also involved in the anti by and large in the anti vaccination movement. So, you know, crazy nasty people. Um and they shouldn't be allowed to continue to dominate our <laughs> our policies on uh new technologies in agriculture. And especially, I guess, through a sort of eco-imperialism imposed that on, on countries like Africa, which, not, yeah, not sorry, countries, on, on continent like Africa, which um, I guess the EU has really done by uh, kind of exporting those those GMO bans, um, you know, with the threat of, of, you know, cutting off imports from countries that, you know, even do a, an experimentation with genetic engineering to meet some of their their challenges like um you know banana wilt or things like that yeah i mean don't get me started on that i i could okay <laughs> on that issue because i've worked with a lot of increasingly desperate plant scientists in africa who are having their work blocked because of um the anti-gmo hysteria and it's not it's not just the threat of import bans from from the eu it's it's actually the whole ideology and all the whole aid sector now is focused on agroecology and that means not allowing gmos um and and the kind of, so it's almost like the whole organic thing has just gone hegemonic and all the charities the whole ngo industry all of the overseas aid all has to be based on the exclusion of new technologies um which is you know <laughs> You know, to, to to impose that agenda on some of the poorest people who are stuck in subsistence farming, you know, weeding by hand under the hot sun, um, strikes me as being well morally questionable at the least. 
and that hotter sun is, is only getting hotter. And in your book, you really outline how in some places it's just going to be physically impossible to work outside uh, during the daytime or even the nighttime. I want to be respectful of your time. I know it's a bit later over in the UK than it is his year in Canada. I'm trying to end on a on a positive note, but uh, you know, as your book ends as well, um, you know, I've really kept my head up and and stayed optimistic um, since I read your original Six Degrees book, which was a bit of a downer. Um, but I've done that by you know really trying to stay focused on on studying climate change mitigation and adaptation tools and learning a lot about nuclear power. Um, it's it's pretty funny. Um, this, this personal anecdote I tell all the time is that, you know, I was just sort of um, doomsaying and, and just talking about all these awful things that were going to happen. And my my partner at the time said, you know, why don't you get off your ass and actually do something about it? And and I think she meant, you know, to sort the recycling better and, uh, you know, figure out our compost pile. And instead, I became a nuclear energy and genetic engineering advocate. Um, but anyway, I've, I've, I've been trying to stay a little more focused on, on solutions. It was, you know, really necessary a th- a thing for me to do to, to revisit, um, what you've done in terms of, of summarizing so well, um, you know, the, uh, IPCC, uh, literature of the last 13 years. So I really want to commend you for that. I just wanted to end with, um, you know, a question, um, I'm the father of a, of a two-year-old son, and I know I think you have a, a teenage daughter um, who it seems to be is following in your steps as an activist. But how do you how do you talk to her about about climate change? Um, well, she wasn't keen on she wasn't keen on reading my book actually because she was like, "Oh, this is too <laughs> this is too complicated to use all these long words," and um, she loves sort of fantasy. And but I mean, she's. <clears throat> she she's she's engaged enough to know that this is a problem that she personally needs to be involved in in fixing. And actually, I've got. A teenager- I saw I saw her letter to uh, to Boris Johnson. I think <laughs> that you you had on Facebook. It was or sorry yeah. on Twitter. It was really great to see. And I've got my, uh, my son. Actually, is fifteen, um, and he's he's become a nuclear power obsessive. Um, I don't know how much my <laughs> influences counts for that, but he's he's keen on molten salt reactors, and he's spends time discussing all the different isotopes and so i, I don't know i think if you've if you've got to, to, to just talk about the problem is only one half of the one only one half of the picture and um i you know i've done that in in this new book it, it is only talking about the problem but that's because i've already addressed the solution in in the previous book called nuclear 2.0 at least my view of that and and lots of other people have done likewise so I still think it's a useful contribution, but it stands alongside all of the other work that's that's been done about solutions and that we need to keep doing every day. And um, all power to your elbow, Chris. Uh, I'm glad you're at the forefront of the eco-modernist movement in Canada, isn't it? Um, you know, it's another country to have under our belts, which is just great. Yeah, yeah. I want to just, this is kind of cheesy, but I just wanted to close off our, our conversation with, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes, and it, it really um, reminds me of, of you, who you, you've been a, a big inspiration for me. I guess you were kind of my gateway drug into eco-modernism. Um, but the, the comedian and social commentator Tim Minchin says, science adjusts its views based on what is observed, and faith avoids observation so that belief can be preserved. Um, and I just wanted to thank you, Mark, for for being such a, a faithful ambassador of science. Um, it's it's been really um, pretty awesome following your your writing career, um, you know, since your original Six Degrees book. So thanks for doing what you do.
Oh, thanks, Chris. That's that's um really generous of you to say, and um yeah, <laughs> really really encouraging, and um yeah, I've 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 really enjoyed um I really enjoyed our discussion, um, and I hope we'll stay in touch. Awesome. Okay, I look forward to speaking with you again soon, Mark. I hope to get you back on the show at some point. Cool. Absolutely. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.